And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is Thursday as we get ready to wrap up the week. That means uh, Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Fed thinking about thinking about tapering because they might be thinking about talking about it come Jacksonville, uh, which is coming up here in September. So that's, you know, if we go back to 2018, that was really the point where we began to see the issues with uh, you know, the Fed talking about, hey, the markets are nowhere near a neutral rate. We're having mic difficulties this morning. Sorry about that. Hopefully we'll get that straight out here in a second. Um, but uh, that was the point in time that the Fed began to really talk about hiking rates and and really beginning to ta- ta- taper quantitative easing. And then, of course, the market promptly sold off by 20 percent between September and December. And by the end of December, the Fed is rapidly talking about, oh, we were just kidding about that whole tapering and interest rate hike thing. So don't worry about that. And of course, that was where the market began to recover in 2019. So again, here we are, kind of a, 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 a flashback in time as we're kind of back to that same point. The Fed really discussing this having to potentially taper you know, QE as inflationary pressures are relevant in the economy. So so Mike and I will talk some more about that this morning. Uh, in the meantime, though, we as we've been discussing here over the last couple of weeks, our money flow indicators, but we're back to where the markets are very overbought here. Now, unfortunately, the markets have not been able to actually get to a new high. We thought maybe with this buy signal in place that we had talked about two weeks ago is that the markets would retest old highs. And we are certainly doing that uh, currently, but we've not been able to get above new highs here. And that is is important to note here because not only is the market not able to attain new highs here, but we've eaten up all of that opportunity to create a run to new highs. And at the same time, money flows have continued to deteriorate. In fact, if you look at the breadth of the market and say the number of stocks above the 100-day moving average as an example, that breadth has has begun to narrow as well, also suggesting that there's weakness in the overall markets. Now, importantly, though, um, as we've discussed previously, the daily sell signal, again, almost entirely used up at this point. That sell signal now in place, which again, now let's go back to these signals that we've talked about before. Again, this doesn't mean that the markets are about to crash. Um, it does suggest, though, that markets are going to be contained to the upside. In other words, there's less ability for markets to rise at this point because of the underlying pressure of what's happening with the flows of money. In fact, if you look at the, the money flows of international global funds uh, of all types, right, ETFs, mutual funds, etc., that has peaked. We had a very strong flood of money coming into markets in the first five months of this year. Well, that amount of money coming into markets, those global inflows into domestic markets has now peaked. So again, this kind of really all corresponds with this idea of these money flows that we've been watching. Those have been deteriorating and now we're on a weekly sell signal as well. So this suggests that this summer, we're still gonna have that opportunity for that 5% correction or so 
as we start to get further into the summer months. So that would, that would certainly be well within the norms. A 5% correction is well within the context of, uh, of just a normal correction in any given year, which is, is really kind of setting the markets up for that to occur. So again, we've kind of got a lot of things aligning here between our weekly sell signals, money flows deteriorating, as well as just the overall activity of the market, right? So we're, yes, we're currently seeing some certain speculative events, you know, AMC stock up 100% yesterday, despite the fact there is absolutely no traffic going back to movie theaters, right? So, you know, we're seeing a lot of real speculative activity in small pockets of the markets, but overall, inflows into markets, breadth of activity, all those things suggest that we're kind of getting into a period of weaker performance in stocks here over the next month or so. That doesn't mean we're about to have a bear market, doesn't mean the markets are about to crash, doesn't mean that you should panic uh, and go sell everything. But it's certainly if you've got a lot of risky investments, right, or, you, or you're very long the markets, or particularly if you're leveraged into the markets at this point, you know, trading a margin, this is the, kind of that point to where you'll want to start to reduce some of that risk in the portfolio um, until we get kind of through this summer and these markets kind of reset themselves. It's going to take about roughly, you know, a month or two to complete this weekly sell signal and to get to the next buying opportunity. Again, that'll line up most likely with, you know, kind of the end of summer and getting ready for that end of year run. Can't believe we're already talking about end of the end of the year run already, uh, but kind of get ready for that end of the year run as we start getting back into the holiday season. So that's just kind of where we're kind of setting up here. So again, just kind of paying attention to the, to the risk here. Of course, you know, as we really kind of uh, focus on, you know, the areas of momentum, NASDAQ continues continues to really underperform at this point as well. Um, had a nice rally here, but that weekly sell signal getting very close to triggering also. Um, if we take a look at the kind of the small cap indexes, that continues to underperform. It had a nice little pop here over the last uh, week or so. But again, performance this year has really been much less than the overall S&P itself. Um, but again, there's some opportunities in different areas. Emerging markets also kind of had a nice little pop uh, over the last couple of days here, just kind of looking for rotation trade. But again, that index still underperforming as well. So again, markets have been very confined. After that really strong surge early this year, um, in January, February, and March, markets have really kind of been confined here over the last couple of months. And again, just, you know, there's, we've had a very strong advance from the March 2020 lows. That has certainly gotten worked in here to where valuations are very extended. And now markets are going to have to start to digest this run, which uh, occurred in advance of the increase in earnings. So now that we've got that recovery in the economy, the recovery in earnings in place, it's now a determination of whether stocks can kind of hold their base here and allow earnings and valuations to catch up with the price of stocks or if eventually we've got to have a bigger correction um, to correct some of that overvaluation condition so again th these are just a lot of things that are kind of weighing on the markets currently and again the question now is really the the issue of the fed and the issue of inflation because if the fed begins to hike rates if they begin to taper qe because of worries or concerns about inflation being more sticky then that's certainly going to put pressure on markets uh, of course as, as as markets try to reprice for that withdrawal of liquidity if they say hey you know what we're going to stay just where we are and keep doing what we're doing then that's a that's a different story maybe prices can remain elevated as fundamentals catch up We'll see, but we're going to talk about that with Michael Leibowitz after the break. Don't go away. I'm Harold Science Roberts for Real Investment Advice. Realinvestmentadvice.com is the website. New articles out on the website now. Realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back.
Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at Real investmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care june 24th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show Seventeen on this uh, Thursday edition. Already getting ready to wrap up the week. Second best day of the week here. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. Talk a little bit about Fed markets, you know, kind of all kinds of stuff. Morning, Mike. How are you? How are you? That's good. Um, so, you know, the Fed coming up here. We've got Jackson Hole coming up, as I was talking about a second ago. And if you go back to 2018, um, it was at Jackson Hole, the Jackson Hole Summit, where it's the annual confab of central bankers all, you know, uh, kind of, you know, converging upon uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming to, you know, you know, have conferences and then go do a lot of fun stuff while they're there. Um, but, you know, they started talking about that was the point to where Jerome Powell said, hey, you know, we're nowhere near the neutral rate. Um, they had already started hiking the Fed funds rate. We're nowhere near to the neutral rate, which means that they needed to hike rates a good bit more. And that was really the the key moment to where the market said, uh, yeah, well, yeah, we're not good with that. And they were talking about tapering the balance sheet. And then the markets fell 20% over the course of the next three months into December. And by the end of December, the Fed's like, oh, we're just kidding. We were really very close to the neutral rate. Uh, we don't know, you know what we were talking about. It's all good. We're going to reverse everything now. Um, we're, here we are. We're back at that moment again. Uh, the Fed's got to talk, you know, is, is thinking about thinking about tapering here and and likely we're going to get conversation about that um and you know at the jackson hole summit again um you know will this be their uh, their waterloo right so you know i think what we're going to see over the next month or two is they're thinking about thinking about tapering becomes thinking about tapering they're going to remove a thinking yeah. in there and that's gonna it's going to start weighing on markets and if you think about what QE does and low interest rates to some degree, they provide liquidity to all markets, to all, not all, but to many financial assets. So the Fed indirectly, I'm not saying they're doing it directly, but some of it is directly through the bond markets. Mm -hmm. They're pumping up the price of assets beyond what they would do if the Fed wasn't involved. The, the issue, though, is is that they're now you know potentially being put into that position. They've really got two issues here. One is, you know, inflation is running fairly sharply. I mean, if you take a look at CPI on a year-over-year -year basis, it's up like 5%. Now, a lot of this has to do right. with the base effect because, you know, last last year this time, we're in the midst of an economic shutdown. You know, they're, the risk they run and, and really the cards they're playing is that inflation is all transient. It's fine. It's all going to go away here fairly shortly. And as soon as we get supply chains open back up, everybody back to work, all this will reverse itself. But that's the risk they're running that maybe this isn't transient. Maybe these supply chains are locked up a whole lot longer than we expect they will be. Right, right. And 
Look, first of all, let me just go back real quick to my point. They've mm -hmm. elevated asset prices. And when they remove that liquidity, which is what they're starting to think about, talking about, thinking about, they will deflate asset prices. Um, and on the economic front, look, you can argue whether we've recovered 80 percent, 70 percent, 90 percent, certainly not 100 percent. Employment is still off, but inflation is back to where it was. Uh, many other many other you know retail sales are 15 percent above their trend. There's a lot of things that are that are actually stronger than before COVID. You can make an argument that let's just say the number is 80 percent. So we've recovered 80, 90 percent. Yet we're still in emergency, not not just emergency. The house is on fire. Monetary stimulus. Right. And there's they're not even thinking about changing anything mm -hmm. right so the markets are salivating they're saying great they're going to keep providing us liquidity even though everything is quickly becoming okay and they're going to have to wean the market off it because it's not driving the economy right right there's very little correlation between qe and the economy right there is some small trickle down effect people make a little more money in the markets they spend it but it's very minor mm -hmm. And like you said, they're running the risk that the economy overheats, right? There's an incredible amount of fiscal stimulus money out there that's buying everything. There's a broken supply line system because of COVID, right? I mean, it's really screwed up what's happened. The government shuts down production and then they give everyone a bunch of money to spend it, <laughs> right? So you got this incredible, you know, something we've never seen imbalance between supply and demand. Right. Right. And that's why the Fed thinks it's temporary, because it's, you know, it's sort of man made. You know, the, the economy's coming back to life. People are coming back to life quickly regarding spending and doing stuff. But these production facilities can't get fully online. The modes of transportation are screwed up. Uh, so you got this imbalance and the Fed is betting that imbalance is transitory. Well, and and that's, and, and, and that's true. And that's, you know, the you know, one of the big issues is and, and this is the one thing that that, you know, kind of the inflationist, you know, talk about is like, well, we have this massive printing of money. Right. We have this huge supply, this huge increase in money supply, which should be inflationary. Um, but the problem is, is that, you know, this isn't really the printing of money, so to speak, as Right. You know, when Rome did it and they started debasing their currency, taking silver out of their coins to, to you know, create more coinage, little different structure. Um, you know, this is basically the recycling of tax dollars. We're taking money from taxpayers to give to non-taxpayers and wanting them to spend it. So it's really a net zero sum game in the economy. So, yeah, we're creating some artificial demand because we have people with money that want to spend it. But suppliers can't produce enough stuff at this point at this point to meet right. that surge in demand, but that's eventually gonna work itself out as the, as the stimulus is now going away, that demand is going to fade, which means supply is gonna catch up with the demand as those start to equalize. So, you know, there's the real risk is, is that manufacturers begin to overproduce thinking that this demand is permanent. And then you wind up with a big oversupply of products that lead to a bigger deflationary push in the economy. And that's the risk potentially that, we all, that we're all kind of facing down the road here. And, and I think that has the highest probability. But I think there's a psychological risk of more inflation. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. My son wants to buy a car this summer. 
So I've been talking to him about how high used car prices are, how hard it is to get a new car. You know, he kind of wants a fifteen to twenty thousand dollar used car. Right. And I, you know, I showed him some of those graphs that are just off the charts. And I said, you know, if you can wait or wait to go back to Wisconsin, you, there may be a better supply demand story there. And and his comment, and I thought it was very relevant, was, Dad, what if you're wrong? What if <laughs> prices just keep going up? And that's what we're seeing in the real yeah. estate markets, right? People know, I, people have to know they're overpaying, but they also may be saying, look, I know I'm paying too much for this house, but if it keeps going up 10, 15% a year, who cares? Right. right. Just like AMC and GameStop. Right. You know, AMC is not worth whatever it's trading at, nor is GameStop. But who cares if it's going to double every day? Well, that's right? the, but that's the difference between speculation, right? That's psychological speculation and but, and reality. And, and but what, my son's question isn't speculation. It's right. reality. Well, it is. But it's still spe his reality is also based on speculation in a way, because he's saying if I buy it today and it just keeps going up, then it won't matter that I overpaid for it today. But that's well, the sheer nature of speculation. And, and, and it's just a right. different form of speculation because right. it's trying to hedge right. off against even higher prices. Right. But, you know, the, the and problem it's rational. Yeah, and it is, it, it is rational and, and it's certainly a concern. But this is this is, you know, the, you know, one of the stories you hear in the real estate market is about the inventory shortage of houses. There is no inventory shortage of houses. It's just the differential that you have a lot of people coming to buy, and there's not that lot. Of, there's not that many people at this point willing to sell their house. Like I'm not willing to sell my house. One one thing that people forget about the real estate market is that all the activity in the real estate market only occurs in the fringes. All of the price changes in real estate, everything that occurs, all the transactions are all at the fringes of the market. It's just those few people willing to buy or sell a house versus the mass majority of homeowners that aren't selling, right? You're not right. selling. I've, I've been trying to get you to sell and move to Houston. You're not going to do it because your wife won't sell your house. That's, <laughs> that's, but that's the vast majority of Americans that we own homes. We're not going to sell them. But the problem becomes is that at some point you hit a price level to where people go, you know what? I was kind of thinking about selling, you know, prices are kind of getting up into my mark, you know, where I might be willing to sell a house. And then they begin to see the prices of houses decline, which actually we're seeing already. Um, and that's when there's this rush to market. They're, they're, because, again, all of a sudden, those people that were on the fringe of selling then see prices falling and they go, well, I better go sell my house now while I can capture a high price. And then all of a sudden you get a big supply of houses as demand goes away. And it's the same thing for the auto industry, same thing for the stock market. It's always that psychological change between people wanting to buy or sell. So another great example, we're working on selling my in-laws house. Right. So we started working on, we started doing some basic work to it December and we were like, you know what? We have time. This market's on fire. Let's do this. Let's do that. We started adding projects to the house to make it, you know, because we think that we can get more out of what we put in. You know, we can raise the price more than the money we put in. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting to the point like, let's hurry up, finish this work. I want to get this house on the market. So it's, you know, four months ago, we were like, we have time. The market's still going up. It's going up. Speculative, right? right. Now, we're, now we're like, you know what? This market's starting to show signs that there's more supply coming on the market. Nationwide prices are dropping. There's still some incredible stories out there of people chasing houses and paying incredible amounts and dropping any kind of claims. And, and you know, but but you can start to feel it that the housing market is starting to normalize mm -hmm. 
And you get that speculative behavior behavior both ways. I got to buy something now because the price is going to be more tomorrow or I got to sell this now because the price is going to be less. Exactly. All right, quick break. We'll come back. Uh, a couple of things to get into this morning here with Mike to talk about a little bit about the markets, kind of where we are, where we're headed. And again, kind of back to the Fed a little bit. Uh, this always has to do with the issue of liquidity, uh, of course. And and the Fed has now made an announcement. They've actually shot a very interesting kind of volley in the, the, in the Wall Street Journal today talking about corporate bonds. And so if you're long bond funds or junk bond ETFs, stick around because you'll want to hear what the Fed's about to do. Don't go away. Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Real Invest investmentadvice.com you're listening to the real investment show and welcome back at 6 33 this morning michael lee joining us this morning so talking a little bit about the fed you know what what the fed does um in particular is they buy bonds and when they buy those bonds, then that liquidity finds its way into the financial markets by providing excess liquidity reserves. So interestingly, though, the one thing that they did differently during the economic pandemic shutdown uh, back in March of 2020 was they started buying bond ETFs, right? So to bail out companies that were basically on the verge of bankruptcy. They started buying bond ETFs to make sure that, you know, bonds didn't default. There was there was support for the bond market, particularly in the junk bond market, where we have a lot of companies kind of on the verge of bankruptcy. And the only way they exist is being able to get loans at very low interest rates. Um, and so we saw the Fed really engage for the first time in buying bond ETFs. And, and this is kind of that everybody at that point was saying, well, here's the first step towards Japan to where the Federal Reserve starts buying, you know, stock ETFs, right? They were they're still buying bonds, which are within their charter, but really kind of outside their charter. They're not really authorized to buy ETFs, but they kind of finagle their way around it for emergency purposes. But now in the Wall Street Journal today, they are going to be selling $13.5 billion of ETF bond ETFs by the end of this year. Um, so those are those ETFs that they bought back in March of last year to bail out the, 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 the corporate bond market. Now they're posting up to sell those. Of course, that's supply hitting them. You know, that's going to be, you know, supply hitting the market, potentially uh, pushing bond prices down on those ETFs. So what do you think about that? So uh, 13 point, uh, 13 and a half billion or whatever it was yep. is actually a number. 
So it will have an effect on the markets, but I think more because of what they're doing than what they're the actual size of what they will be selling. Remember, they do 120 billion of QE every month. Right. Month, so 13 billion is only 10 percent. It's not not a huge deal from a you know mathematical point of view and what the market can handle. But what they really did in hindsight, and we had no way of knowing this at the time, was threaten the market. Mm-hmm. Right. That what they were saying is you keep messing around with bond yields, you keep pushing bond yields up for corporate bonds and we're going to buy them all just like we do in treasuries and just like we do in mortgages. Right. We're going to we're going to take another step out of what we're allowed to do and we're going to buy these things now. So don't worry, investors. We got your back. We won't let you lose money. Don't worry, corporations. We'll make sure that you can keep borrowing at very low rates. And so I think this program was both. Unsuccess- you could say unsuccessful. They only bought $13 billion. That's nothing. Right. Yeah. But very successful. I'd say extremely successful because it put a uh, floor on the market, right? The yields couldn't really drop, knowing that the Fed would buy everything, right? right. Now, they didn't buy everything, but that threat was always there. And I think it's going to serve the Fed well going forward because now everyone knows that when the Fed gets active again, not only can they buy treasuries, not only can they buy mortgages, they can buy corporate bonds, they can buy Apple bonds, but they can mm. also buy junk bonds. So if you're an investor, why, why, why even just you know try to find the highest yielding bonds because the Fed will buy them, right? right. Why, why, why even do any due diligence? Why, <laughs> why try to find the bond that has a good chance of paying off, right? That's not going to go bankrupt. Well, so basically you're making the argument it doesn't really matter what you buy, just buy anything well, and, and you'll that, be fine, right? Not necessarily, but within reason, right? So, for instance, Ford is junk rated. I, you know, if something happens, I have no reason not to suspect the Fed won't buy Ford bonds, right? It's an integral company to the economy. It's a large company. Its bonds are liquid. And I think that's an example of a junk rated bond that's protected by the Fed now. So, you know, that's what the Fed, the Fed does this. Right. It's not just their purchases that are important and they are very important, Mm -hmm. but it's the fact that everyone knows the Fed will come to the market and rescue them. And that's how that's how valuations have stayed at such elevated levels, even pre pandemic valuations were extremely high and they've been high for a long time. And that's because no one everyone's willing to take additional amounts of risk because they think the Fed has their back. Right. And so and, and the argument you're making is that the Fed does have their back. So there's really no worry about risk. So, again, you can buy junk bonds without any real risk of default. I, I think that's, you know, within reason, again, I think if you're buying small companies, the Fed doesn't have your back. And right now, for instance, if the economy stays OK, mm-hmm. you know, there's no reason for the Fed to intervene. I think they will let a lot of junk bonds fail if that's what's going to happen. Right. But. But when things get problematic again and when the Fed feels the need that they have to interfere, they will and they will protect. Right. You know, it's not just protecting the companies who took on all this debt and now have to refund it over and over again. Mm -hmm. They're protecting investors that knowingly took risk. And, you know, both sides of that equation are very problematic because it it basically creates misbehaviors. Companies are borrowing too much money because the rate is so low. And investors are not doing their due diligence and considering, you know, they're they're discounting or haircutting the risk 
of every investment they buy. And that creates huge distortions in the capital markets, which creates huge distortions in the economy. Right. And that's why economic growth over the next 10 years will be below 2% because of, in part, not, not everything, right? Demographics are an issue. Productivity is an issue. But the Fed is doing nothing to help future growth, and they are actually hurting the future growth rate as well of well, the economy. And, well, right. And we saw this during the, the pandemic shutdown, right, is that companies have spent years, you know, buying back their own stock, misallocating capital, et cetera. And as soon as there's an economic problem where they need cash, they all run to the government saying, hey, we need a bailout. Right. right. Um, you know, and this is but this is the you know, the the effect that the Fed has now had is that it's encouraging companies to misallocate capital. It's it's encouraging companies to do ineffective share buybacks. And because companies now know, hey, as soon as the economy gets in trouble, I can run and get a bailout from the from the government. They don't have to worry about paying back. So why not? Um, You know, and this 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 doesn't lead to stronger economic growth over time. It doesn't lead to better economic prosperity, which is why, you know, we have people, you know, running around the streets rioting at this point because of wealth inequality. And, you know, they're they're rightfully angry at corporations. You know, right now we've got a big push. You know, corporations need to pay their fair share. Individuals need to pay their fair share, whatever it is. We've got to raise taxes. Um, but this is that belief that, you know, there's, you know, this, this well, it's not, it's not a belief. It's the reality that there's this massive wealth inequality that's been created. And primarily, a lot of that has emerged since the Fed has become so active in supporting asset prices, which benefit the wealthy, but not the bottom 80% of income earners. Right. Those closest to the money printing press, those closest to the federal government, receive an, ordinate, an inordinate amount of that money. And that's why you have these mm. massive wealth inequality gaps that are on par with the late 1920s, because those on Wall Street benefit from the Fed. Those large corporations that get bailed out, that, that get the big contracts from the government are the ones benefiting. They're not passing it on to their employees, right, largely. They, they are buying back shares. They're doing whatever they can to get the price of their shares up because they have options. That's how they get paid. They get paid largely in stock options. And they want nothing more than the stock price to go up, even if it means that the future of the company is worse than it was before they do that. And these are I mean, these are incredible problems. And this isn't capitalism anymore. Right. Well, this, capitalism. This, right. But this is the funny thing about AMC. Right. So AMC is, is a great example of this. Right. So these small, you know, retail investors, um, you know, that the, the have a few dollars to invest are running in and, and speculating into AMC, hoping that the price has gone up. So, right, the price went up. What are the insiders of the companies doing? The insiders of the companies just sold a big chunk of shares to a hedge fund that turned around and sold them for a profit. They're just announced this morning they're going to sell another 11 and a half million shares of stock this morning to capture that price. So it's interesting is that, you know, the individuals are mad at these companies for being so wealthy, but by the individuals driving up the price of the stock, it allows these insiders of these companies to sell shares to generate wealth. It's a very it's 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 a very fascinating feedback loop of investors actually causing the problem that they that they're so angry about that they want solved. Right. It's a very warped system. Right. Yeah. And again, you look at GameStop, you look at AMC, how much money is in those stocks that could be into more productive ventures, infrastructure, 
could be in trying to find a cure for cancer. But no, how much is in market cap of those two companies, which are, look, they have value. People are still going to the movies, but it's not worth 10 times what it was before well, the pandemic. Well, you say that, I mean, the, the number of movie traffic goers has not recovered at all. Uh, really, uh, since the, you know, kind of June of last year, I just posted a chart out on our Twitter account this morning. You know, there's been real no uptick in traffic going to movies. Uh, just a good example, they just had a, the Quiet Place Two just debuted over the weekend, raised fifty-seven million dollars in its first weekend. That's that that's the number one generator of of box office returns this year. And that's just a drop in the bucket of what we used to see, where you would see a Marvel movie hit the theaters and generate three or four hundred million in a weekend, right? I mean, just vast differences. And of course, you know, they've got a lot of you know, and, and again with AMC, you know, that's not an ethereal business. Those they've got rent to pay. They've got you know massive. These are big facilities. You know, twenty twenty four screen facilities staffed with employees, overhead, labor costs, all that. You know. That's not a real profitable structure for them right now, but yet the stock's trading at all-time highs. Are there even 24 movies out there right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're running a lot of, uh, they're, they're rolling back a lot of old movies to, to fill screens. So, all right, all right, quick break. We'll come back. Uh, we're going to wrap up the show with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Everybody get up. And welcome back to the show this morning. 647. That's interesting. I just... Uh, uh, on the break here, they just ran an Expedia commercial, and it shows this uh, woman that she's, you know, she's getting ready for work. She's got her bag, and she starts to walk to the door, and the carpet becomes a treadmill, so she can't actually quite get to the door. And it's, you know, it, what they're saying is, is that, you know, this this getting back to work thing is very difficult, and we all need a break now, right? We all need to take vacation. <laughs> so I, I think a lot of people are just wanting to get out of their house at this point. So. That's the vacation. <laughs> Although it's still amazing to me, Lance, how many people are still working from home? Like yeah. your office building, what percentage do you think it's back to normal? It's probably it's ten. It's about ten percent. Right. Right. It, it's very so, low. So, I mean, there's there's very little traffic in the building right now. And again, it, it, and this is going to be one of the interesting, you know, kind of conundrums, you know, over the course of the next. You know, year or so is that this whole idea of return to work and you know the whole vaccination issue. You know, who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated? Can companies require people to be vaccinated to come back to work? You know, there's going to be a lot of uh, of potential. There's already been some lawsuits that have been filed over, you know, demands that people get vaccinated. Um, 
you know, so that, this is going to be kind of an interesting thing to see if people migrate back to work after being locked up. There's a, and a look, you take you take a look at polls. A lot of these polls suggest that people like working at home. Um, you know, it gives them more flexibility, gives them other things to do. Uh, the question is, is how productive are they? And the other problem becomes at what point do companies say, you know what? You know, you're working at home, that's fine, but I can automate that job or I can consolidate your job with somebody here in the office and start, you know, reducing labor some more. And that's, I think that's going to be one of the big challenges for employment going forward as companies have now gotten used to this idea of running smaller smaller staffs, right, which reduces that labor cost, which is the biggest cost of running any business and streamlining their operations because that's been a huge boost to profit margins over the course of last year. A lot of these companies reporting earnings have had big, big boost in their net margins because of reduced labor costs. So there's a couple of things there that are all tangled up, right? One is, yeah, maybe I am a little less productive working from home. I think some people are more productive, some are less productive, Mm -hmm. but let's just assume they're a little bit less productive. That's an expense for the company, but to the benefit of that is the company needs less real estate. We don't need a desk and office, mm-hmm. and the company can outsource jobs. If if my job, right, I, I'm I'm working from home. Right. Your office is in Houston. I'm in D.C. I could work in Bangladesh. I can work at the North Pole as long as I have internet connection. So that means you could fire me, and you could hire someone in one of these countries or even part of the United States where they demand a lot less. So, so there's an I offset. I thought about that. To, hopefully, Connie's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this offset, right? So, so yes, you're losing productivity, but some of the other gains may make this whole work from home thing mm-hmm. a lot more palatable to many corporations, especially more in the service industry, right? Like mm-hmm. lawyers, like they really can work from anywhere. Do they really need to be in? you know, a big office in and real estate, you know, at least around here, firms have the most expensive real estate. Most partners and most associates have their own offices. Mm-hmm. So it, it's very expensive real estate per person. Right. So you can trim that office space down significantly, offer conference rooms, offer offices when they want to come in. But there, there are many ways for corporations and, you know, partnerships to take advantage of this and reduce costs. Right. Exactly. And that's and that's what I was saying is like, you know, they, the companies have gotten used to these higher net margins and they're going to be reluctant to give that back up. Oh. You know, and, and so this is one of the challenges. You know, we talk about this employment situation now on Friday. We've got the employment numbers, right? ADP this morning and then we've got the BLS report tomorrow. Last month was a big disappointment. They, you know, estimates were running between a million and a million and a half jobs on the high end. You know, last month for employment, we came in like 250,000, 280,000, whatever it was, right? So big miss there. Um, but this may be one of the real challenges for the Fed, which is saying, hey, look, you know, we want to get full employment back. Well, what exactly is full employment? Is it 5%? Is it 6%? Is it 3% where we were previously? I mean, well, we had 3% unemployment under the Trump administration, and we were still doing QE and right. keeping rates at zero. So, at what number is full employment to where you stop doing QE and stop doing stop doing and zero what, interest rates, right? And how about this as a gauge of full employment? When when employers can't hire people, when they can't find workers, maybe we're at full employment then. Yeah. Right? Right? There's other ways to gauge it and we use these 
these these they just the Fed just makes up numbers, right? Oh, three percent full employment. Oh, two percent's the right rate of inflation for us, right? The, these numbers, there is zero sense to two percent inflation. Right. That's not a quantitative. It's not spit out of a model, right? I've actually heard the story about it. There's some country, Norway or Sweden that decided they were going to go with a 2% inflation target years ago. Mm -hmm. And the whole world has adopted that as, the oh, that must be right, right? 2%, yeah, I don't that know sounds what, good. I don't know what it is about Sweden, but about every economic white paper that's written about some economic policy, well, Sweden did this. Sweden's got a population of four. Uh, I mean, right. <laughs> you know, compared to the United States of 330 million, you can't compare Sweden to any other country in the world and say that's going to work in the U.S., right? Right, right. But, that's, but for some reason, that's every economic white paper. I mean, it's actually literally a joke now that every economic white paper is uh, a study in Sweden showed this, and this is the new policy in the U.S., and, and that's, right. that's where we are. Exactly. And trying to put a number on things and saying this is the right rate, is again what it does is it distorts it distorts the economy it distorts capitalism and what it ultimately does is it distort it it reduces prosperity to all citizens not just the wealthy not just the poor to all citizens and that's what we're seeing and yeah. that's why again economic growth is going to be sub 2% through most of the 2020s. Right. Right? Yeah. And, and look, real, real quick, I want to switch gears here just because we're getting ready to open up the markets this morning. Markets are going to open down pretty sharply this morning, be down roughly about 1% at the open. Um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about our money flow buy signal was coming and, and that there was an opportunity here for markets to kind of rally back. Um, you know, we've been talking about this rally would likely be weak because again you know as we kind of look at where money flows have been those have been deteriorating here um and again we kind of got back to all-time highs have been unable to to set new new all-time highs in the s p the nasdaq the dow really kind of across the board uh markets have really kind of been struggling here as of late um this is you know the good news about that is that is allowing moving averages and and valuations etc to play catch up with price here a bit but the elevation is still very big. You know, there's still a lot, you know, very large deviations from long-term moving averages, et cetera, which really kind of put the market at risk for a bigger correction this summer. Just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it, you know, here before the market opens this morning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like over the last couple of months, we've kind of consolidated, right? We, mm -hmm. We've kind of inched higher, but not in the fashion we were doing it for the previous eight or nine months. The tone of the market's changing a little bit. Um, the technicals are slowly eroding. You know, breadth is is a little weaker today. But, you know, again, we've talked about this, Lance. We have to be 99% technical at this point, right? We know the fundamentals are grossly overblown. Mm -hmm. So technicals mean the world to us right now. And we have to follow things closely, and we're reacting to technicals. And, and that, that explains why we're reacting more actively than 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 we normally would it's because we're relying on technicals and when they say when they say we're in for a period of selling or consolidation got to take some cards off the table because we know we're flying at forty thousand feet and the right level is fifteen thousand feet and somehow we're gonna you know the next 10 20 years we're getting back down at 10 20 15 thousand feet right we just don't know when right so we always have to be prepared and when it goes, you know, when when we see a bunch of buy signals, we can add back some of that exposure. But we can keep putting in chips, taking off chips, chips. But we always know where those chips are and mm -hmm. how it affects 
our portfolio. Well, I, I guess, you know, one of the things, too, is that, you know, the, all the stimulus that we had, you know, in, you know, March of last year, then December of last year, then uh, in January, February of this year with under the Biden administration, that's all kind of run its course through the system. So we're beginning to see that kind of wane here. Um, you know, the, the big question now is, is can the Biden administration get a, a infrastructure package passed um, here to help try to support the, the markets in the economy as well. Um, you know, that's been going back and forth. The Democrats are threatening to try to do it on their own. The question is not whether they can do it under the reconciliation process, which requires it to be part of the budget. Um, that may be challenging because of some of the other spending they want to do in terms of expanding child tax credits and those types of issues. So, you know, the Biden administration is trying to work here uh, with the Republicans to get something done. Um, you know, the question is, can they get it done? And if they do, since that spending is spread out over 10 years and more importantly, government jobs are very difficult. You know, when, when government says they're going to do infrastructure, those infrastructure projects are very hard to do because of so much red tape. It may not really have that big of an impact on the markets. It won't. It, it's very different from the stimulus they've been doing for the last year where they're writing checks and giving them out to people. Right. This is it's more thought out. It, it, it lasts. Like you said, it takes time to figure out which projects to do and then to actually do them. It will it will help economic growth, mm -hmm. at least, you know, while those projects are going on. But you're right. I mean, even if it's even if it's a trillion, you know, how much is it going to help the economy any one year? A hundred billion, 150 billion, yeah. which in a 20 something trillion dollar economy is not that much. Yeah. Mike, thank you so much for the call, for the, uh, joining us today here on The Real Investment Show. Be sure you're by the website. His latest article is out on the website right now, realinvestmentadvice.com. While you're there, send us questions, comments, emails. Always happy to help you out, as, as always. Also, while you're there, get our latest three minutes on markets and money. We post new videos there every single day, along with new articles, our newsletter coming out this weekend. So make sure you're subscribed. Simply just click the newsletter link at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get subscribed to our newsletter. We'll have that out to you on Saturdays. Keep you up to date with what we're doing in our portfolios and what we're looking at in the markets. That comes out every weekend only at realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow on the next Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.